Hello, and welcome to episode 7 of Hidden Noise. I'm Abby Sandler. And I'm Rebecca Siegel. Today's show will begin, as usual, with our Go See. Which I am very excited to announce is Arthur Mitchell, Harlem's Ballet Trailblazer. And then we'll be joined by our Tadia's director, Carolyn Ramo, who will speak a little bit about the nonprofit, their mission, and then we'll hit her up with the Even Eight. But first, to Harlem. Before we dive into the exhibition, we want to give you a little background on a few things, starting with Arthur Mitchell, the subject of our Go See. It should also be said that Abby, my dear co-host, is actually the expert on performance. Well, perhaps not expert, but yes, I love dance and performance, and this exhibition is really my pick. It's a tribute to Arthur Mitchell, who is one of the most important dancers of the 20th century, and also the first African-American member of the New York City Ballet. Mitchell was born in Harlem in 1934 and started his dance career at LaGuardia High School of Performing Arts in New York City. The school is incredibly famous for producing some of the best actors, dancers, and musicians from the 20th to now the 21st century, from Timothy Chalamet to Nicki Minaj. And after graduating, Mitchell performed on Broadway and then attended the School of American Ballet, the academy affiliated with the New York City Ballet. In 1955, when Mitchell was 21, the ballet's artistic director, George Balanchine, asked him to join the company. Making him the first African-American member of the company and not long after, the first African-American principal dancer at the NYCB. And this was just the beginning. Balanchine created several roles for Mitchell, such as his role in Aegon in 1957, in which Arthur Mitchell and Diana Adams' interracial partnering became the most controversial pas de deux in the history of ballet. It's no joke when Mitchell refers to himself as the grandfather of diversity. Truly. In 1968, after MLK's assassination, Mitchell partnered with his former teacher Carol Shook to create what became the Dance Theater of Harlem which further pushed Mitchell to the forefront of the black arts movement. Their mission was to prove that not only could African-American dancers dance classical ballet, but they would. The company was centered on the idea that art making was also an act of social justice. Mitchell's dance theater performed a repertory of classics, contemporary ballets, and a number of works rooted in the African diasporic experience. Now, the exhibition at Columbia functions as a tribute to Mitchell's innumerable achievements as both a creative visionary and an activist. To that extent, it makes a big point of incorporating a number of other artists and figures who helped make his vision become a reality. The show traces the course of Mitchell's career through a variety of media, photography, video, original performance posters, performance notes, costumes, as well as paintings, sketches, and sculpture by other members of the Black Arts Movement. And these aren't your average New York Times art section photographs. In 2015, Arthur Mitchell donated his archive to Columbia's rare book and manuscript Library. So a lot of the photography and ephemera on display has either rarely been seen or never exhibited at all. Yeah, and I can't emphasize this enough. Do not rush through this exhibition. Really stop and look at these photographs and definitely sit and watch the performance compilations. As the expert between us, Abby, what were the highlights on your end? Well, I have to say, aside from the photographs, which I could stare at for the rest of my life. There was a clip from one of Mitchell's lecture demonstrations in which he's talking to a bunch of young school kids. He's explaining to them how ballet is really an extension of a broader movement in everyday vernacular that they are much more familiar with than they realize. They are so engaged and he is so good at eliciting such a strong response from them. Watching it is absolutely incredible. The segment then ends with his company performing a section from Rhythmatron, which is fantastic. It shows that this man was 
was not just a talented dancer and that the way he communicated his artistic vision, his ideas of what dance was capable of were super special. The show isn't huge, but in addition to these gems of photography and performance video, it's also worth talking about its location, the Miriam and Ira D. Wallach Art Gallery. When I was a student, the gallery was found through an unmarked door on the seventh or fifth floor maybe of Columbia's art history department building which is in the northeast corner of the main quad and it's very hard to describe how sort of irrelevant this location and space was to an everyday existence on Columbia's campus as of last year the gallery has relocated it is now a component of Columbia's new Lenfest Center for the Arts a spectacular building designed by Renzo Piano on 125th Street yeah this was a pretty decent upgrade the Substantial move also called for additional staff and increased programming, which they hope will make both the Wallach and Lenfest more of a cultural center in Morningside, while remaining in dialogue with the rich cultural history of 125th Street. I would actually argue that the goal will be to be part of any dialogue, let alone a dialogue of 125th Street. Really, the Wallach has been a wonderful venue for Columbia's staff and students to have access or to exhibit their access to some of Columbia's best materials, either from the manuscripts library or through its relatively small art holdings. With the goal of being part of a dialogue of 125th Street, whether you call that Morningside Heights or Harlem or whatnot, there is an element to which the Wallach has asked itself to be more than it has been in the past. Did you ever go as an undergraduate? I think I went once or twice for, you know, some intro to art history class where they had us do an formal analysis of some bronze Diana sculpture that was on display. But beyond that, there was never anything, you know, worth writing home about happening over there. I think the idea about engaging the community, you know, not just as a university, which has its own problems about being internal and elitist, that there is um, a lot of exciting programming ahead for the Wallach in this new venue that may sort of speak to that community as well as to its role within a university. Well, and it's also interesting because when you look at the archives that, first of all, Avery has, Avery Library at Columbia, and their rare books and manuscripts, I mean, they have this incredible wealth of resources and I would think that and hopefully they will start doing more with you know what is in their possession so here's to a year of exciting programming at the Wallach we hope and in terms of community outreach we should highlight the organization Artadia we are very lucky to be joined by Carolyn Ramo who will be on our next segment Carolyn is the director of Artadia which is focused on artist grants around the country First, we'd like to welcome Carolyn Ramo, director of Artadia. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you for having me. First, I thought maybe it would be great to tell our listeners about Artadia, give a little bit of an overview of the organization, how old it is, and what your mission is. Sure. So Artadia is 19 years old. We're about to have our 20th anniversary in 2019. And when the NEA stopped giving artist grants about 24 years ago, there was this opportunity for nonprofits and foundations to step in and provide individual artist grants. Artadia's mission is to support artists, visual artists. And we do this in seven U.S. cities. And we do this through a few different programs. As I said, the first thing that we do is give unrestricted visual artist grants. They're given in a very helpful, supportive way, um, in a very impactful way. We have an open application in those cities, Atlanta, Boston, Chicago, Houston, LA, New York, San Francisco. 
And by open application, you mean literally an open call to any visual artist who would like to apply. Correct. Yeah, that's very rare. Um, A lot of grants are given by nomination. And so we're really interested in reaching artists that are maybe not part of the system, quote unquote. So artists tend to be on the emerging side, although we don't define it by the word emerging. They can't be enrolled in art school. They have to have lived in that city for two years. Otherwise, it can be any single artist living in that city. So beyond that, we have curators and established artists as our jurors. And we have two rounds. The curators then, when we get to the second round, We have a group of finalists. They get studio visits with the artists. So, you know, at every step in the way, the artists are supported. There's a dialogue. There's feedback. And they're meeting these incredible people, whether they be more established artists or curators in their hometowns who have a direct impact on the arts community around them. Correct. Yes. And that's pretty rare as well. The other unique thing about the Artadia Awards is beyond just giving unrestricted support, we're very interested in making sure that the artists are supported beyond the funds. Money can have a certain amount of impact, but then it goes away. Artists use the funds for whatever they need, whether it's in studio rent or production or uh, famously to get divorced when artists use that. (laughs) Um, So... You know, it's whatever obstacle is in your way. You know, if you're an artist, there's a certain amount of funding that you can get if you're selling work, if you're lucky to be selling work. A lot of these cities have a robust, you know, community of supporters in terms of collectors and galleries, but some of them don't. So these artists have, you know, achieved a certain amount of success and then they, you know, need more. So Artadia is not just about giving a grant and then having those artists then completely fulfilled. It's certainly about the validation of being recognized amongst your peers. And then we think about what else do artists need. We're constantly engaged with the 310 awardees that we have over the past 19 years. So it's about $3 million that we've given away. But those 310 awardees need more than just funding, as I said. So we continue to connect them with curators. We have a program where we bring curators around the country to do studio visits, public programming. We also do a lot of one-on-one support in terms of connections in the commercial market. That's my background. And so I'm really interested in integrating Artadia more and more in that world. Our ultimate goal is to be able to have an artist walk into any gallery, any room of collectors, any group of critics and say, I'm an Artadia awardee and have people, you know, sort of recognize that artist as notable in their city and then have untold benefits beyond that. And generally for you in terms of connecting people with larger audiences, whether they be collectors or gallerists, are you guys exhibiting work in any context? I know that sometimes you guys are at various art fairs. How does that sort of work in terms of your involvement, both as a grant giving, but also as exhibition making? That's a great question. So I think that we should let institutions and foundations and organizations kind of stick to what they do well. We give grants really well. Um, (laughs) So I would say that we're, you know, we're a really small team. We're based in New York, although we kind of have eyes and ears everywhere in our seven cities. And You know, I'm not so sure that we should be the ones making exhibitions. A lot of times the exhibitions that come naturally out of Artadia is location and geographic based. That doesn't always make a great show. Artists, I think, have a bevy of wonderful places to show. So again, just a long answer to that, that we really kind of stick to the grant making and then the the supplemental programs beyond that. Um, But I am, as I said, really interested in connecting the commercial world. That's where the artists have asked for repeated help. Um, And you know, being at art fairs, we have a great partnership with NADA where we give a grant there. And it's a wonderful way to support artists that maybe are outside of our seven cities, but also for Artadia to be present for every dealer and every collector walking the halls to understand what Artadia's mission is. It's been a wonderful way for us to get a little bit more exposure. And then also in turn, 
maybe support the artist by having their work in the booth. Um, so that's as far as I go in terms of exhibitions these days. Sometimes we have opportunistic exhibitions and Minnesota Street projects in San Francisco. Um, we had a great 15th anniversary show, but I tried not to to say I'm a curator. I have too much respect for that field <laughs> and that role. <laughs> to know what you do and to be very good at it and to keep those things separate. Exactly. <laughs> um, before we get started on the Even Eight, I just want to make sure we give an opportunity for you to tell people how they can support Artadia. Sure, absolutely. So Artadia has a robust group of supporters all over the country, and you can be involved locally, which means that unlike sort of a a larger membership group of an institution, we have more intimate ways to connect with artists. So it's a great way to, to join and support artists in your individual city. We also have that nationally as well. What is also great about Artadia being so small is that we're we're fairly nimble. So we're very responsive. And literally every dollar that goes to the organization goes to artists. Um, And as I said, we've given $3 million away. And this year, we are launching our sort of second year of giving artist grants in every single one of our seven cities. So it's a wonderful way to measure impact and see where your dollars can go. So, you know, unrestricted funds to artists are a way to you know, allow our cities to have a robust cultural scene. And we need to have our institutions, but we need to also have our artists. Yeah, and if you want to be involved, particularly in cities outside of New York City, but also in New York City on a much more sort of, I'm hesitant to say grassroots, but much more direct action. This is an incredible way to support artists in places that people aren't accustomed to doing that, like Atlanta and Chicago and and places where there is less of a sort of daily interaction with that kind of a community. Yeah. And then that said, you know, New York and LA do not have a lot of grants for artists. There's not a lot of programs for that um, in those cities. Um, and there's a huge artistic population, but there's certainly a different benefit of funding an artist in Atlanta, you know, versus Los Angeles. Um, the grants have a, a very different impact. And it's very satisfying for me to have grown up in LA and now live in New York and kind of have this idea of like these that's what the U.S. art community is just those two cities and to really have gotten to know what's happening in these other cities and you know I always invite other people to check out our website get to know some of the artists that we've given grants to and really you know be curious about what's happening in other cities that can only help us all if we get that Well, since we are now sitting with three L.A. girls who all live (laughs) in New York City, one of the first questions that we're going to ask you is what the most underrated show in New York is right now. Okay. Well, you said show, but I was going to say also about sort of the whole New York thing is that I'm on the road about three quarters of the month. So even though I'm in New York quite a bit and I see a ton, I think, you know, based on what we just talked about, there's so much to see outside of New York. One of the best things I've seen recently, which is getting a little bit of attention, but I think it'll get more is prospects. Interesting. And I think everyone should get down there if they can the next month. It's really incredible. So for our listeners who may not know, Prospect is a biennial that happens in New Orleans. And this year's biennial is uh, in conjunction with the 300th anniversary of this founding of the city. So New Orleans has organized a huge set and sort of an expanded biennial as part of that celebration. And, you know, who doesn't want to go to New Orleans? It's such a fun city. (laughs) Um, But what's great about this year's, and I've seen the past two, is that it's, it's a little bit more concise. You can go to maybe five venues. You can see 
almost the whole show in two days and then also get some beignets and it's really great um and you can just head down there for the weekend it's hard not to be excited about laura owens next to jimmy durham at the whitney i know that's also not very underrated but we've been talking a lot about laura owens but i think also just looking at jimmy durham right next to laura owens is kind of a high point for me those are two of my favorite artists of all time so it's very excited for those two shows Deciding to put them on the same floor is really interesting in a, in a building that has, you know, the fifth, sixth, seventh and eighth floors, you know, all basically transition at will between special exhibitions and permanent collection. And they've moved around in all of those spaces. So it, an incredible move to split the fifth floor like that. Yeah, it's really exciting. Also to say uh, something that's underrated is we talk a lot about women that run museums, but we don't talk a lot about women that run nonprofits. A lot of the downtown spaces, except for maybe participant and the new museum are run by men. The Whitney, Whitney. White Columns, <laughs> Artist Space, Swiss Institute, The Kitchen, all run by white right. men. They are all run by white men. That is So fun. I just wanted to state for the record that creative time, we're looking at you. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Creative Times uh, acting director is a woman. That's true. Yeah. Right now, there is sort of a very clear, um, very specific kind of person who seems to be in charge of all of these things. Yes. So I think it's underrated for us to just kind of pretend like we don't notice. Don't see that. <laughs> <laughs> and on the flip side, what's the most overrated show in New York right now? I think someone else said this, so apologies, but Kusama for a lot of different reasons. I know it already happened, closed, but... I, this idea that we need to take selfies and put them on Instagram, and that is our art viewing experience. You know, I have a lot of respect for the institutions that are showing Kusama, and I'm very excited when people are excited about seeing art. But they, I don't know, there was something that was a little wrong there for a lot of different reasons. And the most exciting recent development in New York's cultural landscape. It's hard not to be excited about this calling out of harassment uh, in the art world. I think it makes us all nervous and anxious and looking forward to see what will happen long term. And um, it's exciting to also let women have a chance to have a voice and maybe we can sort of see what's what's not working um, and an opportunity to fix that. Also to say Agnes Gund selling the Liechtenstein last year um, and creating a fund for criminal justice to me was very exciting. Hopefully it sets a trend in philanthropy. Um, it's going to be an interesting year for philanthropy because of the tax code and a lot of other things going on. Um, there's always a competition for dollars and it's, you know, we all see these documentaries or we read the news and feel a lot of emotion and it's exciting to see someone act very quickly on that as opposed to just sort of like letting that feeling pass by and moving on to the next. Do you think that for Aggie's donation that there should be sort of a stronger correlation going forward between how people are looking at their the added investments of their art collection in that way is that what's interesting to you is the like the utilization of the actual art for the sale and funding of criminal justice or would you have been equally happy had she just written a check for a hundred million dollars I think it's very fascinating that that's where you know the sale of artwork is going I also think that it's specifically for criminal justice is interesting but similarly like Rockefeller we all know that that's going to charity, I think, four different foundations, which is exciting as well. And I think when you see things like a $400 million sale of an artwork, um, one artwork, and then subsequently an exhibition just about one artwork, 
you're, you know, there's just this imbalance. I got asked so many times, what would you do with that 400 million? And I'd love to say unrestricted grants for everyone, but, um, (laughs) you know, Artadia well-funded for the rest of time. (laughs) Although I'm not sure that every single artist deserves an unrestricted grant. And I think that's very important too. Um, but no, I think, I think that's, what's also really great is that looking at our walls and saying, you know, how much do we covet these things? You know, I love when people have created an interesting collection and share it with the world, but a lot of times these are collections that are private and it's very hard to access and you know you always walk away saying you know oh I wish more people could see that and so this is a way that more people can see this work and that it will will truly help others that's very exciting and what's the most important book you've read recently or movie you've watched well I recognize that it's not necessarily the most well-received film in terms of the gay community I know there's a little controversy about it but call me by your name was to me one of those experiences where you turn to the person next to you and you're like, this is so beautiful and I'm having such a good time watching it. And, you know, everything is so heavy these days. And just to see like, you know, a young summer romance play before your eyes was just really highly enjoyable. And then in terms of importance, it's hard for me to shake dark money. Um, I don't know if you guys have read that. And just the web of what's behind every single thing that we read and who's behind it all. Um, I think it's a it's a must read. I was going to say that it was very fun to watch Arnie Hammer be a live 80s Ken doll. And yeah. then, Literally. <laughs> a live 80s Ken doll um, with colorful Bermuda shorts and all kinds of other fun, sort of very clearly of a moment aesthetics. Yeah, absolutely. Um, although I now feel that I should probably recognize dark money as well <laughs> though it is it is it is not at the top of my fun reading list no it's definitely not fun um yeah. but yeah no Luca Guandanino I think I pronounced his name correctly has made three really great films about desire he said so this one is the sort of idealized love right um idealized it was yeah <laughs> anyway it, it was great I had a great time watching it I don't know if it's necessarily important but you know sometimes you just need to be I think that viewing experience is important I really enjoyed it yeah. and Escapism is where I'm at right now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. If you could be an expert on any subject, what would it be? Maybe desalinization. (laughs) Okay. I was thinking of (laughs) one more time. (laughs) Um, Why? Well, I'm just, I don't know. I have a little bit of a a apocalypse fear these days. You know, it's hard not to with the news. And I just think about like, what what skills am I going to need in 25 years when Earth is filled with water? We're going to need to learn how to how to turn the oceans into drinkable water. Is that is that a strange one to be an expert? I guess like survival skills in general. Okay. You know, I'd love to be able to be like plopped in the middle of the woods and know how to grow my own food and right. start a build fire. a house. I mean, I think I can start a fire now. Are, do you? Yeah. I can start a fire. Like with, from with nothing? Just with nothing. Like you can just... Like, like I'm s- not... Like not with matches, yo. <laughs> like I mean, like rocks. Oh, we're rocks. talking like... Yes. Twigs on rocks. With yes. some moss. Some dry moss. Well... Well, I, I can't say I've been put in that. I was gonna say, but I can, <laughs> I can give in the right tools. Okay, so like foraging skills. would be a really good thing. Right, to know. not mushrooms. poisoning yourself. Yeah. yeah, right. I mean, I think all of that comes into play for okay. me, just in my like sort of deep deepest fears right you should stop reading dark money (laughs) (laughs) and start only focusing on call me by your name But like this week maybe gardening i'd love to be like i mean i I love to garden but i'd love to to know a little bit more about it where do you take somebody that you're trying to impress 
I think you said Raul's, which mm. is a little unfair because that's one of my favorite. I mean, that's like romantic, fun. And similarly, like Prune, I think is just fantastic. You never have a bad meal there. But I would say upstate New York. I spend a lot of time there. There's all these great institutions now that really show how like one, you know, wonderful building full of art can can really have a shift on a, on a small, beautiful town. So something like, you know, the school that Jack Shaman has, El Magazino, which is this incredible collection um, in Cold Spring, you know, et cetera, et cetera. There's nothing better than being able to go to like a bunch of artist studios in Hudson and then go hiking and swim in waterfalls. You know, I don't know. I just really? think upstate New York, especially like, you know, the Catskill region, it's just very... Beautiful. impressive and so do you flee upstate when you want to be alone I do <laughs> um, well when I want to be alone certainly but also I would say there's you know pockets in New York I mean we're all just like alone in our boxes on top of each other but um, the bus is like probably my favorite place to be alone the bus yeah where do you take it well, sometimes <laughs> from Chelsea <laughs> to, to the Lower East Side is an incredible bus ride oh, okay and you know, if you're reading and you just like don't even want to like deal with people on the subway. Well, I happen, just... I happen to know that Carolyn's offices are in Dumbo. So the, the bus question about where you take it is rooted in the fact that that's not how she gets to work every no. day. But you know, in this in the warmer months, walking, commuting on the Manhattan Bridge, which a lot of people commute on the Brooklyn Bridge or just there's tons of tourists. But Manhattan Bridge, you're basically by yourself most of the time. It's incredible views. It's a little loud, but that's also another wonderful place to be alone. Just like that walk. And we have to ask as our final question for you, what is on your radar for 2018 that we should highlight for our listeners? You know, I would say for, you know, three different answers. For Artadia, we're really looking at the immigrant artist population this year, particularly in Houston, um, and how to better serve that population. There's a couple other programs out there, but I think that's a, it's a way for us to connect to our existing body of awardees. It's hard not to be focused on the midterm elections. That's basically, I think, what should be on everybody's radar. You know, maybe forego a weekend in the Hamptons this summer and instead try to figure out where, like via swing left, like where we can actually have an impact in that regard. And then lastly, on a personal level, you know, I'm just very interested in growing dahlias. <laughs> I'm trying to figure out... You With know, desalinated water. How <laughs> to make that happen. And so the other morning, I, you know, I woke up like 7 a.m. to fight the rest of America to get my dahlia bulbs from a very specific cellar. And then... Where? Uh, it's this place called Florette. I can't believe I'm plugging them right now, but um, they're a flower farmer in, in Washington. And, and uh, so it, it's a really wonderful, satisfying, beautiful thing to grow. And, and it's a competitive and market. It is for Florette. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I'm most intrigued yeah, about. Yeah, it's kind of like, remember when we were in high school and you would fight with Ticketmaster and you have all your friends call at the same time oh, and then course. go on at the same time to get like, I the don't best know. Best seats to something really tragic. Something. Yeah, horrible. I can't just put that on. <laughs> are you kidding? Mine's so much worse. I can't even say it out loud. <laughs> and so Dahlia, surprisingly, is similar in this regard. Uh, but it's a very satisfying thing to grow. It takes a lot of work and it's so beautiful. So on a personal level. Dahlias. Dahlias. We will come visit you upstate. Please. See some art. You'll be in Kinderhook and Cold Spring yeah. and then and 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 admire your beautiful dahlias. I hope so. Thank you so much, Carolyn, for joining us today. Thank you for having me. And everybody should take a look at Artadia's website and learn more about the organization and all of the good work they're doing around the United States. And even get involved. Please. Thanks so much. 
We want to remind everyone to go to the Wall Art Gallery at the new Lenfest Center of the Arts on 125th and Broadway. See the Arthur Mitchell Show. And make sure that you check out Artadia's website. Applications are open for Los Angeles this month, and next up is New York. So for all of you artists out there, please start preparing your materials now and start enjoying the city. I'm Rebecca Siegel. And I'm Abby Sandler. And this is Hidden Noise. 